Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. We're on a series that is looking through the book of Romans and just mining out the microaggressions that are there, the microaggressors. I mean, this book really should tick us off. Uh, I, th- I think we tend to read it uh, and, and whitewash the whole thing. This thing should be upsetting. And this particular passage, even more so. Romans 1, 16 and following. You can see what I mean. I think we just do a really bad job of exegeting this passage. Okay, Romans 1, 17. I talked about this in the last podcast, so I'll remind you what it says. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So this righteousness, this dikaiosune in the Greek, is a relational intimacy. It's a relationship word. It's a closeness with God where you are a person of great honor, no shame. You feel welcomed, adored, held close, without any sense of criticism or probation. And by the Spirit's hands, you're beginning to more and more feel like it. You're You're feeling loved. And this is the end of loneliness and exclusion that we suffer from in the United States. This is the end of the anxiety. I mean, you know, tendency, right? This doesn't happen fully until heaven. Since the pandemic hit, there's a CDC study in June that says anxiety disorder is up over 300%. And it feels like it. Well, this experiential rightness with God is the antidote to shame and anxiety. A little bit, right? And and so the questions that my brain asked, Jesus, do you still like me, even though I said that and did that or didn't say that or didn't do that? And, and we hear from the Spirit powerfully, yes, I love you more than love itself. I can't love you any more or any less. And yet, here's the microaggressor. This side of heaven, our messed up addictive brains still jones after counterfeits, anything that will give me that dopamine hit, that serotonin hit, the, the oxytocin hit, even if my prefrontal cortex just knows that that behavior is wrong and unhealthy and it's a short-term hit that's, that's linked with debilitating shame. And I have decades of habitual bad addictive behavior that clicks into my brain somewhere in the shadow of my midbrain and it says, hmm... I remember I did that and or said that or drank that or went to that website. I, I did those things. And you know what? It felt pretty good. It felt really good. And I could use that hit right now. And so feet, arms, let's go. And in the craziness of my brain, right, largely subconscious, I run to those short-term chemical hits from fill in the blank that make me feel good for a moment. Really, they, they do. That's how I'm created. But in the end, it's just laced with shame and guilt. All right. So what does God do? How does he respond to my craziness? Does God throw up his hand in disgust uh, and find others to do his work? Right? No. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and that's in Romans 8. But for now, let's, we'll see God's strategy in Romans 1. And again, <laughs> It's a microaggressor. It's troubling. <laughs> God will let me at my addictions and craziness for a season. He'll let me do them. Romans 1, 18 to 21, I'll just read it. The wrath of God 
and this is more than just anger. If you have seen the still face video in some of our curriculum, this is the mother turning away. And, and the feeling is uh, that God's justified angry, something wrong with me. God uh, has to hold his nose at me. It's more than just anger. Uh, it's a still face as well. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women, by the way, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. See, we should know better. Our prefrontal cortex probably does because God has made it plain to them. For, verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible at qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So, all things equal, if I didn't have that messed up programming in my brain uh, that has happened since the third trimester of pregnancy, attachment theorists are telling us, uh, the lack of attunement, the, the mistakes, the shame, the guilt, the failure, all those things, I could see this very clearly, but man, my brain's messed up. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So don't think about them being non-Christians, right? This is all of us. This is Christians. Isn't that, isn't that offensive? So instead of foolishness and darkness, think of the ongoing bad habits that my midbrain produces that have sh are shaped in my brain, again, because of all the past uh, lack of nurturing, atonement, intimate relationships, and the presence of loneliness and disconnectedness and shame, and just feeling that I'm not enough. Uh, all of those things are driving me away from God. By the way, we've just launched uh, another online experiential journey. We had the Forgiving Path. Over a thousand people have gone through the Forgiving Path and are learning a new way to forgive. Well, the dance is a applied gospel presentation to, to people that Paul's talking about in Romans 1. For those people like you and me, those people for whom Jesus died and purchased all the love in the universe, meaning we stand now in the presence of God in his shining face, and we can look up into his shining face and know that he loves us as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. But for whatever reason, we're not feeling it. Somewhere in the shadow of our brain, some voice is telling us that there are earthly places where we can feel good again, where we can feel less lonely, less ashamed, less brain pain, less a sense of uh, being not enough or feeling disconnected. And Paul is giving us a short list of those places in Romans 1. So check out the dance. We named it the dance after that ancient imaging by Greek fathers in the 4th century that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally exist in a great intimate dance. Uh, here's one uh, scholar. The Father, Son, and Spirit are engaged in a dance which is their life together, a dance without beginning and without end. A dance which is joy beyond all telling. And the music of this eternal dance echoes in the vast reaches between the stars and pulses and worlds inside of atoms and travels on every breeze across the earth and surges with the blood through our veins. I love that. From time to time, we hear the music of this eternal dance during the silences when everything makes sense, during the celebrations when we taste a bit of heaven. It's on these great and good occasions that we hear the music of the eternal dance, the rhythm of the Trinity. The Trinity is an ending, joyous dance. Man, that's what I want. Yet the miracle is that the circle breaks open and the Son and Spirit, still holding hands with the Father, extend their other hands to us. 
tonight as we are, inviting us into the circle, drawing us into the dance, that we may become their partners, participants in life. Man, and see, that's available to us by faith uh, through the Spirit. Uh, and, and at the dance, we take you through the baby steps to begin to experience that. By the way, www.the-dance.org. Our suggestion is you do it now and do it often. Make it a, a spiritual formation thing. We give you 30 days for the price of admission, so you can go through it as many times as you want. It's the simple, uncluttered gospel applied to my loneliness disconnectedness, lack of enoughness, and shame. It's very powerful. So check it out. All right. So back to microaggressions in Romans 1. And this is where Paul is just laying this microaggression on big time. He's not talking to them. He's talking to me. He's, and by the way, he's not talking to four separate groups of different sinners, right, who are innately this kind of sinner or that kind of sinner, who are so different, right? They're demographic categories. No, he's talking about all of us. Any given day of any given week, we could be any of those things given the context, right? So it's not like you're born this way. So don't think, well, I'm part of group one or not group number two. Your brain, given the right or, or wrong context, will will gravitate to any of these dopamine hits, right? They're kind of generic. The dopamine hit is dopamine. Therefore, he'll argue a little bit later that why would you judge anybody, right? You're doing the same thing. You're just, you're just finding different sin. Uh, so stop judging the person who's looking for dopamine hits in that category. So this is us. Every day, we wake up with this bent. We wake up with this tendency. It's humbling. No, it's humiliating that what Paul is saying is that we're still so broken, so needy, so lacking this spiritual faith, so unfaithful. And this is Paul at the end of his ministry. He's going to say in Romans 7, him too. And yet, good news, God's love doesn't change. It remains unmoved. He still loves people who are chasing love in all the wrong places. Oh my goodness, the love of God. All right, verse 22. Although they, that's us, claim to be wise, right? You go to Sunday school, you go to church, you get it, you can you can list the 66 books of the Bible. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools. It, largely subconscious, your brain is chasing these dope pits and your prefrontal cortex has very little control. 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over. I'm going to focus on that Greek verb parodidomai, in the sinful desires of their hearts, meaning the sinful desires that remains in our brain, uh, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And he's not saying that people are evil and wicked and they're intentionally trying to degrade bodies. They're fools, right? They're acting as if there is no God. They're acting as if there is no love of God. And they're chasing these remembered dope hits. All right, parodidomai gave them over. That's not bad, but one uh, dictionary said is to make it possible for something to happen, to allow or permit. And I think that's really good. So you can't see this, but here's what paradidomi likely means. I am holding up a pin about 12 inches off my desk. So I am technically fighting against gravity on the pin's behalf. The pin's not asking me to necessarily. I don't necessarily think that it's struggling up. And as long as I hold it up, the pin's going to hover over the desk. But if I let the pin go, did you hear that? A hundred times out of a hundred. Gravity, which never stops tugging downward on the pin, happens. And the pin 
will never become immune to this downward tug, at least while it remains an earthly pen, right? I'm not going to get into pen resurrection, but you see what I'm, where I'm headed. And, and, and the gravity is always going to keep wanting, desiring, empowering the pen to hit the desk. So when I stop holding the pen up, stop holding the powers of gravity at bay, gravity wins paradidomai. Oh, man. So if this doesn't tick you off, you're just way too protected by religious shells. I mean, you're not listening. Come on now, wake up. This is way different than the way we usually preach this. Here it is. God knows that all of us have this proclivity to these dopamine hits. Any dopamine hits, generic dopamine hits. The biggest and easiest and most easily accessible dopamine hit, right? It's how we're made. So when we feel down, ashamed, depressed, alone, not enough, like we've fallen short of expectations, we've screwed up, I want that pain in my brain to end. And my brain has a file cabinet that it goes to and it's looking for those carefully recorded places to go and to things to do. And along, my brain actually files the experience, the emotional experience of dopamine, you know, so when I went there, how good did that feel? They're all filed together, right? And also the success rate, you know, when you did that and it felt that good, it actually worked, right? And it, and it worked 10 times out of 10. Ah, so God in his love has been protecting me from that addictive reactionary behavior. Otherwise, I'd be doing it day after day in and day out. Now, I want to think that I'm getting better, that I'm faithful, but my midbrain is hardwired to be an addict. It, which is me, I, subconsciously keep looking, keep longing, keep begging for the fastest dope hit that I can imagine, particularly when I'm feeling bad and depressed and lonely and, and down like a failure. And I go to the places that I can most quickly uh, access the dopamine. So eventually, God lets me go. He allows the pen to fall. Can you believe it? And honestly, it feels good. I might even be grateful to God because he's, I'm falling into something that gives me a pretty reliable feel-good dope hit and, and stops that incessant nagging in my brain to end the pain. Well, all right, even if you don't ask the question, I will. How can a good God do that? You said he loves me, and God has a plan, a strategy. And matter of fact, it's a very powerful tool in his arsenal. I'll try to explain it, right? Um, and it apparently works, but I have to tell you, I don't like this strategy much. So I'm going to label it redemptive shame. With the falling into the action that gives me a feel-good rush, shame's going to happen as well. It's not just a dope hit. When the dope wears off and I'm stuck with a mirror and with my shame and my loneliness and disconnectedness, I still have that shame. And then the Holy Spirit and my inner being, right, because he goes with me when God paradidomized I'm not separated from him. The Holy Spirit goes with me and hits the desktop. And he reminds me of the, it gives me the simple and cluttered gospel, the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ, and reminds me that it's for me, for failures, for shamed people, for, for that person in the mirror. And he hammers me with that good, ridiculous news. Then he gives me his faith, uh, Ephesians three fourteen to 21, his powerful ability to believe that God still loves me. He hasn't given up. And it gives me a rush of God's kindness that makes me want to change behavior. That's Romans 2, 4. It's his kindness that leads to repentance, at least a little, right? So this is not about Paul defining categories of hardened sinners, Romans 1. This is a buffet line of potential dope pits that are all around us all the time, every day. It's not about 
this sin better than that sin or any's versus Audi, clean or unclean, right? Better or worse sins. This is about the day-to-day struggle we all have. We, the children of God, to stay in the arms of God. We keep squirming. I mean, I don't like that image, but there it is. When I need that hit, I have a choice of hitting the desk or looking in the eyes of God. And I, I tend to look down at the desk. So, options? Paul's got a whole list, man. Sex of all kinds. Huge dough pit, right? I don't have to explain that. If I do, ask your parents. Porn, adultery, sexting, hetero or LGBTQ. It's the same short-term dough pit. It's the same chemical, right? You, you name it. Very powerful short-term dough pits plus shame. And it does still the nagging voice of that relational loneliness and lack of enoughness in my head for a moment. It's very powerful, very addictive. So listen how Paul puts it. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over, paradidomide, right, to shameful lust. That's that the dopamine hit that comes from that. Even women exchange their natural relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent act with other men and received in their and themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Paul says this dopamine comes from adultery, from destructive relationships, whether they're hetero or or LGBTQ. All sex ignites the nucleus accumbens and floods the weary, lonely, and beat-up brain with dopamine and oxytocin and can become addictive. And I can identify with that, right? So Paul's not specifically condemning one community per se, like the LGBTQ community versus the, the adultery community. In fact, he's being a bit of a universalist. Uh, in a certain sense, everyone is desperately looking for dope pits. Some find them in one bed, others in another, others on a, on a computer screen. It's very sophisticated neuroscience. It's very gracious, too. He's just saying that all of these are very powerful dope pits, but they're counterfeits, they're substitutes. They come with shame. All of them. And, and this can happen to anyone and everyone. Stop looking for a gay gene. That's not the point. This isn't nature. This is nurture and choice. Paul is saying that all of us, given the right context, would be paradidomide into a wide variety of generic dope hit activities. So let none of you judge anyone else. This would be humbling, humiliating for us. We're all desperately looking for this experience of feeling the embrace of God. Now, we'll have it full time in heaven, but short term, we're desperately wanting that. And yet we keep tragically finding it in all the wrong places. The alternative is not to stop LGBTQ or and start hetero, is to remember the dopamine hit without shame that comes only from God's embrace. He loves his kids, even those who have been tripping to grasp temporary substitute and idols, heterosexual stuff, homosexual stuff, porn, addicts, and listen, I mean, even gossips. And this is not to justify any of these idols or to say one's better or worse than the other. In fact, it's, to call, it's a call to remember who you are uh, and to remind you to run to God. Look up into his eyes with your shame. Just come and experience a relational dope pit that's so much better and so much more shame-free than anything else in Paul's list. No matter what you were, where you bedded, God adores you if you're his child, right? 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over, paradidomite, to a depraved mind. 
to do what ought not to be done. I mean, so here we are. This is destructive reactionary behavior. Uh, 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Look, is it just me or does this sound like addicts? who have woken up from a, from a dough pit and realized they just did it again, and it didn't work. And they're, that pain is back. And they're miserable. They're filled with shame, self-loathing, blaming, unhappy. They're afraid. They're acting out against society and family and God and themselves, self-harm, suicide ideation, right? Doesn't it, it sound like a pathology here? What do you think? Miserable people who, and some children of God who feel like God's disappointed and disgusted with them. And so, you know, to heck with him. I'm going to go my own way and it's going to go into this tailspin. Again, the Holy Spirit goes with them, but this is probably how they act out. At least that's what it sounds like to me. All right, Romans 2.1. Therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you pass judgment. You who pass judgment do the same things. It's all about pursuing dope pits. That's that's our life. That's our from morning to evening, man. That's our life. Um, even even our subconscious and our dreams. We're we're looking for love in all the wrong places. We're Adam and Eve hiding behind a tree, putting on fig leaves as if that's going to somehow relieve our shame. Instead of looking up into the eyes of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and feeling the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ, because that's what we desperately need. Chapter 2, verse 3, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, right, it's always them, and yet do the same things, meaning uh, find that dope pit somewhere else. Uh, Kierkegaard, the, the Danish theologian philosopher, said that, that these idols, the sin, is anything other than the embrace and love of God uh, that, that you pursue to get significant security and belonging, right? That's everything. That's all day, every day. Uh, verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance? Meaning, this God's continual pursuing you, loving you, whispering how much he loves you, giving you faith, his faith, in order to look up. And when you look up, you see a shining face. That, that kindness actually leads you to a change of behavior. So, <clears throat> to be clear, this side of heaven, we're that pen being held up, fighting gravity by God. And that pen is riddled with mental illnesses and entrenched shame and guilt and loneliness, bad habits, lack of enoughness, disconnectedness. We're struggling to find significant security belonging. Uh, we have a lack of spiritual faith. We most often are longingly gazing at the desktop, uh, wishing that God would let go of us, longing to fall. Because in the past, our brain is telling us that, that it felt good. Right? There was a temporary dope hit, a temporary silencing of the nagging voice of discontent in my brain. And when I hit the desk, right, whether it's adultery, idolatry, gossip, whatever it is, I, I get that hit 90 times out of 100. That's a good odd. Man, Vegas would be all over that. And looking up in the face of God and being filled with the power of the Spirit and feeling like a son of God being assured of that, well, maybe that's happened a dozen times where hitting the desk has happened a thousand times. It's a question of neuroscience and habits. So, good news, child of God. When you hit the desk, 
and do whatever you do, um, the Spirit has gone with you. And he doesn't change what he thinks about you. He adores you. Jesus pre-purchased that. He adores you just as much as if you had been faithful. He lovingly reminds you, because that's how he feels, you have the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for you. The righteousness of God, which he gave you, the right relationship that Jesus pre-purchased, and it's that kindness that, that you begin to experience that finds you in the aftermath and shame of your folly, and mine too, and makes you turn your face upward to see the shining face of God again. And then when you do it again, he's still there, and again, and again, and again. Sanctification, then uh, we can redefine sanctification as that measurement where the time between longing to fall and uh, right and falling into the, the place you get your dopamine hits uh, temporarily, between the time you, that happens and the time you actually turn your face and experience the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ because of the Holy Spirit, sanctification is when the, the time difference between those two is shortened a bit, at least the side of heaven. I don't like this. It's a microaggressor. Paul is saying that I have deeply dug neural pathways that coming to Christ didn't remove, right? That, that deceive me, that drive me to do th things that my prefrontal cortex knows is not good, not helpful. This is socially destructive and ruins relationships and makes me feel shame and failure. And yet I do it again and again and again and again and again. Let me, let me just act out in my microaggression. Why doesn't God just wave his magic wand and make me faithful? Make me Christ-like? I don't know. Um, you know, with all due respect, I don't like this strategy, but I'm just saying it is what it is. I don't see what he sees. I don't see his long-term strategy in it. I just don't. I'm just reading the, the present tea leaves. And, and I know that this too will happen when I see Jesus face to face in heaven. I'll get it. But for now, my participation is to regularly learn, develop this habit, to make the, to ask the Spirit to make me begin to feel the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for me and, and more, more and more so that I feel the longing uh, for that other potential short-term dope hits less and less. Right? That, that, that's the goal. All right. Uh, we'll see you more next time on the Gospel Rant as we look at more microaggressors from Romans. Take heart child of God. A powerful prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help, guide, and speak to us through prayer. I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical teaching and encouragement on how you can make prayer a natural and consistent part of your everyday life. I promise it won't require hiking a mountain, but you just might develop the faith to move one. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.